In this episode, we talk about the inner workings of SwiftUI and how we leverage that to build our own, what we call awful UI, that is supported in iOS 12 and uses UIKit under the hood. This is Contravariance. Good morning, Bas. Good morning, Benedict. How are you? Did you have a good night? Um, a good night? It was a short night, at least. <laughs> um, but. I feel a bit refreshed. Let's see how I feel at the end of the day. What about you? Well, same here, because Buzz and I, we were on a different podcast, on John Sandel's podcast yesterday evening for recording, and now it's early morning and we are doing our recording. Who came up with that idea? Yeah, I have no idea. <laughs> so for this episode, uh, we decided to talk about something uh, very specific, and that is something called Awful UI, which is a, a re-implementation of Swift UI on top of iOS 12. Basically, you can you can use the syntax and the patterns of Swift UI with actually without actually having to use iOS 13. And that's something that um, I briefly started and that now the company we work for, Xing, has overtaken. And um, we wanted to briefly talk about the um, how it works, how it's done, and also what are the what the issues were that arose when doing that and uh, what's also really cool about this is um, you learn a lot about swift ui by trying to re-implement swift ui and some of these things we also want to talk about that's exactly what i wanted to ask you because it's super interesting that we are working on this and that you've started building this um but you have to start somewhere and that somewhere is swift ui right because right. it's it's uh based on SwiftUI, it's inspired by SwiftUI, so maybe it would be a good idea to talk a bit more about the inner workings of SwiftUI. Um, maybe you can tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, we can we can start about that. And I suppose everybody now has at least looked once at SwiftUI and then seen the demo of what it does and how um, you can easily compose elements together. And so when you do that, um, everything you define, like every every let's call it element, um, is a of a type called view, which is a very lightweight protocol that, um, that Apple introduced with SwiftUI. And every view has only one property, that is its body, and that is also of type view. Specifically, it's some view, um, that is the type. And some view, or some, is um, a new keyword in Swift 5.1 on iOS 13. And um, you can use that to return a type um, of a specific protocol that also has an associated type. So, oh, now we are in associated type territory. It's oh God. becoming complicated. <laughs> but, uh, but, but what it means is I give a very simple example. So let's say um, you have a view that just um, displays text. And now this view... SwiftUI has a dot .background property where you can give it a background color. So when you call that on your view, um, what you get back is a new type. Um, the dot .background method call as a return um, of the of the method basically as just some view because you get just some sort of view back. But in reality, what you get back is something maybe called um, view with background color. Because now you get a different view back because the view that you had before now is a different view with a specific background color. And um, 
the reason why Apple does this is that you, you could do the very same by just using normal protocols that don't have associated types. But then you have a lot of what's called dynamic dispatch. So that means at runtime, whenever your code, your, your view is supposed to be rendered, um, the type system has to look up. It has to ask this blob, hey, what are you? And then it says, well, I'm a view. And then it says, well, what, what kind of view are you? Well, I'm kind, are you this kind of view? No, that's I'm not. Are you this kind of view? No, that I'm not. And, and this takes a lot of time and this would make the rendering more expensive. So by keeping all the types and, and not having just a general protocol for everything, but very specific types, Apple can actually um, do very fast rendering because it knows right away this is a view with a background color or it knows this is a view with a background color and a padding and so on. You get the, get the idea. So um, this is fundamentally how the SwiftUI rendering works. And um, I think this is also the reason why part of SwiftUI is written in C++ because they can leverage the Swift compiler engine in there. Um, because for some things, it's kind of tricky from Swift to figure out what this is, what this type is. And um, But if you just have, if you have the Swift compiler in there and you can basically take the memory and look look at it and understand it, they, you have made much more uh, possibilities in order to um, do this in a very fast way. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that um, make SwiftUI really interesting is where it, um, besides all the interesting things like uh, accessibility support and dark mode and all of these kind of things that we don't have to think much about, it's also supposed to be at least really performant and also take care of these kind of issues that that might arise. So I think it's a really complete package in that sense. Yeah, and it does have this one special power that many uh, that not everybody knows, but you can actually tell it that your um, the whatever layout you build can be rendered as metal, and then basically instead of using a UI kit or something else in the background to place the labels and so on, it would just do a one is do a metal pass, so it goes right to the GPU and it's it's incredibly fast. I don't think this works for every situation, especially when when it comes to um, to interaction and so on. I'm not I didn't really see put it to its paces and see how it works. The alternative would be um, having to write metal shaders. So first learning the metal shading language and then learning how the pipeline works, how to set up GPU pipeline and then starting to write that shader code and so on. So that's very much way more involved than just having one checkbox and telling your code that is fundamentally the same code, just be metal instead. So this is a really cool feature. Yeah, that's that's akin to the one checkbox to make your iPad OS app also work with Catalyst. Works perfect. Yes, exactly. Um, but how does that translate to what you called awful UI, right? Because I can imagine that, like we just said, uh, with the dynamic dispatch, etc., that's something we can't actually use in iOS 12. So what does our... What, our, what does our thing look like um, and where have we been able to mimic SwiftUI and where does it lack? So I think it's, it's useful to understand the uh, desired use case for this and that is to be able to use a subset of SwiftUI in view controllers to, to lay out views to, to like the, the inner working of, workings of a view and not necessarily using everything that SwiftUI offers. Um, it has many modifiers and um, effects and so on that we, we don't want to support. And if you limit yourself there, then um, you have something like um, you have the V stack and you have the uh, H stack, um, you have buttons, you have text, you have stuff like for each, um, if else, 
um, and a couple more things that 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 is was what is currently working, um, and a couple more things will be added to that. Uh, but it's important to know that there's no the idea is not to re-implement everything of SwiftUI. That would be a, a fool's task um, and, and completely impossible uh, in many ways. Um, but more importantly, as you as you said, for the types, um, there are also so awful UI um, uses dynamic dispatch everywhere. Um, there may have be, there, there may be the, the there may be an option to part uh, to use more static dispatch, but that will make it much more involved. Um, and the dynamic dispatch is also what we are do using currently. So the code that we would replace with awful UI um, already does a lot of dynamic dispatch. So it's not like we are losing something. We we would be on the same. It would not be any faster, obviously. But at some point in the future, when we just replace the import statement from awful UI to Swift UI, once we are on iOS 13, um, it would suddenly be faster. So and until then, it's just the the kind of performance we already expect from our system. So that it's not a deal breaker to me to not have these incredible performance for now, but knowing that it come, can come in the future. But the good thing is that um, at some point in the future, it's just one switch, basically one change, hopefully. And I guess a couple more other things, but the, the, the dream is that it's a very lightweight migration task to actually use SwiftUI instead of what we have now. So it's just a stopgap um, implementation. Right. Um, and what is the reason that we're working on this now. Like, why wouldn't we continue with UIKit um, until we can support iOS 13? Yeah, that's a good question. I also wonder about that every day. <laughs> now, so what is the reason, Buzz? Um, well, so the actual reason for that is that we're working on something in the company um, that really benefits from already investing into a new a system that is akin to SwiftUI, um, because that's something that we're very much involved with at the moment, doing UI work. Um, and that's something that we want to support at some point. So we don't really have the opportunity to support SwiftUI at the moment, um, but a reason to build a partial bridge uh, to SwiftUI is very, very beneficial for us at the moment. So imagine I'm working for a different company now and I'm running this into the same issue. We are still supporting iOS 10 and we would love to start building stuff with SwiftUI. Would you guys almost source this? I mean, I think that's something that we would love to, um, but we would need a bit more time to, to look into uh, how this is going to progress, um, documentation, etc. cetera. Um, but that's definitely something that we would love to do, I think. Yeah, and I also think it, it will be the right thing to do once then the, once this works as expected, and our use cases are solved, um, then more people can maybe add to it when once it's open source and also solve more use cases, add more features to it that that we don't need internally, but that others may use, and then it becomes even more useful for more people. I mean, that would be really great. Um, let's see where that where that is heading. So one thing some people might wonder is when, when you start to re-implement something like that, how would you even start that, right? So maybe somebody out there is thinking about uh, re-implementing the new uh, UI collection view diffing and wants to know how to, how to do that. And so what I initially did basically was there's a Swift UI um, generated header that you can look into when you, when you click on one type. And that's a very long list of stuff in Xcode. So you you, you choose whatever SwiftUI type you have, you go to its implementation, and then you get, you're in this huge header. And that's why I started cherry picking. So I basically just copy pasted this stuff over to a new project, 
No, the problem is you since it's headers, you just have the um, function. Um, you don't have the function bodies. You just have the names and so on. And then you have to come up with ideas how to fill it in. So, but it, that already makes it far more easier than completely coming up with it. Coming up with it yourself, you kind of see the the structure, and then you can just think how to what to fill it in with, so that it so that it works. Um, that's basically how to, to the easiest way to start this. And from there, um, once you do that, you have to go through these new fancy features that were added to Swift 5.1, uh, like function builders, property wrappers, and the nefarious sum keyword in order to, to re-implement basically what's, what's being done there and to re-implement this syntax way where you just write up this tree of stuff that then renders into a view. And that's something I, I really like about the approach that you took um, because I feel you have to start somewhere, right? And there's not much. So you have to do it with whatever you can get your hands on. Um, and with there being the headers and with there being a bit of documentation around that, I feel that that's a great start to to get a feeling of what, it, what, what Apple thought building this. Um, I think it's still most certainly not trivial to then fill in those small gaps. <laughs> um, and I'm very impressed with how you did that. But yeah, that's that's definitely like a good first step. And what blew my mind initially, actually, which is also the case with Swift UI, is you don't have a concrete type. You don't have a UI view, right? You just have a protocol that at some point magically becomes a view. Um, and I think that was a realization that really helped me or... I don't know if it helped me because I'm still like not sure about it, but it's like good to know that you're working with protocols and some someone in the back is taking care of, of rendering that rendering that. Yeah, that for me was also the the easiest way to to kind of solve this problem because you have these pre-existing view types, like they are all structs. And that's that's the the let's call it the public API interface of SwiftUI. You can't really do anything about that. Um, and I needed a way to to be able to um, to handle them as something similar that converts into a UI view. And so I basically, I added a new protocol called rendered UI. And so now everything conforms to this protocol and has an implementation, one method that basically renders itself into a UI view. So if you have a um, button struct, for example, then it returns imaginable a UI button. It's not that simple, but something like that. And it just knows how to turn itself into a button or the text struct that is in Swift UI. Um, it knows how to render itself as an UI label. And so that's an easy way to um, split up the problem into smaller, smaller sub-problems and solve it individually in there. I actually have a tricky question for you because you say that we render everything as a UI view. Something like a button really benefits from being a UI control, which... Like, how does that work? Because UI control obviously is one level deeper than UI view. Yeah, this is indeed a tricky question because one thing that's very different in SwiftUI is how buttons work. So in, in UIKit, basically a button has a label and you can set an image, but in, in SwiftUI, um, the, whatever the button does display basically can be more SwiftUI stuff. So you can actually put like five images and two, two text and whatever else in there. Um, and then basically that is layouted using the, the same mechanisms uh, that it's also using to lay out the other, uh, the other UIs. So in order to solve that, currently, um, 
the button that is being displayed, uh, displayed is actually a UI view that has a gesture recognizer added to it to be able to tap it. Now, this does have some problems because um, stuff like uh, the state and highlighting and so on needs to be re-implemented on top of this UI view. And as you say, it also doesn't, it doesn't even conform to um, UI control. And I'm not sure um, if the current implementation is the correct one, and uh, if, if maybe depending on the needs we have, we be, uh, we need more of UI control, or even need to subclass UI control maybe to do that. Yeah, and I feel like we're definitely in a stage where that's still fluent, right? Yeah. Just like with SwiftUI, I would say uh, we're definitely not done, and we're definitely like still figuring out things to improve. So yeah, we might want to look into UI control at some point and see how that can can help us. Um, but then we mentioned like function builders, we mentioned opaque types, which is the sum keyword. Um, we mentioned property wrappers. Can you tell us a bit more about how you use those features to re-implement SwiftUI so, and why they were necessary? So the um, my favorite one, well, no, I can't say favorite one. I like them all, <laughs> <laughs> all equally. But um, the function builder is really cool. So the, the function builder was a bit tricky initially to understand um, in, if you want to, forward, to su fully support what SwiftUI does. Um, I had to look into the, um, there's a Swift Evolution proposal. And in that proposal, you find a link uh, to the implementation in the Swift compiler. And I needed that implementation to finally uh, get all the details because it's not very well documented currently. What it does is um, you, instead of, so consider a builder pattern where you where you have something, let's call it a body builder, and where you create a new one. So you say, let's my builder equals body builder. You initialize it, and then you say body builder at button, body builder at view, body builder at label, body builder at button, stuff like that. And, and that is very verbose, and it, it's a lot of boilerplate. And the idea behind function builders is that um, you can have a method or a closure um, and within you just define you just say button label button and it will collect these individual instances that you create uh, that you created so it will when you say button label button it will it will transform it into let a equals button let b equals label let c equal bu equals button and then return all of them as as a new type and then you can basically take all these and do something with them and usually what you do and that is also what swift ui does is you get them back as a tuple um, because you need to have some sort of structure that you get back for multiple types and uh, for several reasons arrays don't work well and tuples work really well because in a tuple each type can be different uh, but in an array if you have different types in there they would be all any so that doesn't work so you need to get a tuple back of the different types so it would be a tuple with a label a button another label and i don't know what an image um, and then at compile time you have this tuple with different types and then you kind of need to figure out what's in there um, and and start the rendering of this. And this allows you to to, uh, to have this elaborate syntax. And my favorite thing, and that was the one I needed to, to look up, was I thought that the way if-else works in there. So when you do SwiftUI and you have if true, um, do this view, otherwise do the other view. I thought there was some sort of magic they had added to the Swift compiler, and I didn't know, I didn't know there was act that this was actually also handled by function builders. Um, but it is. There's a build either 
implementation um, that you use and build conditional. And with these, you can actually even implement if-else, which is really cool. I can think of so many use cases uh, that are not SwiftUI um, where this function builder syntax, given that you also have the if-else and, and other things, is very valuable for allowing you to express your problem domain in a very specific domain-specific language. It, it's really cool. But now I have uh, maybe tricky question number two is you mentioned tuples. Um, how does that work? Because I can imagine that SwiftUI heavily relies on equatability for all its diffing and for all its optimizations. Um, and that's something that's tricky with tuples because you kind of have to generate equality for a two-pair tuple, a three-pair, four-pair, five-pair. Where does that stop and how does that work? And how does that work with function builders as well? Because I, what I've seen from your implementation is that our function builder... I think supports up to like a five tuple. Mm. Um, I mean, you can generate all of that, but like, where does that stop and how does that scale, basically? Um, th this is a fun topic that, topic that many people ran into. Um, currently, it stops at nine because SwiftUI is limited to nine tuples. Uh, so basically, if you have a function builder and re you want to return from an expression in there more than nine elements, it doesn't work. What you can do is you can group it. So basically, if you use two groups and then nine tuples in there, it will all be added up, and then you have 18 tuples, um, or 18 elements. The issue is that, as you said, the more you, tuples you add, so let's say you would add a 22, a 10 tuple or a 15 tuple, that um, increases the compile time ever more. So that's why Apple limited it to nine. Now here comes a fun fact from a different language called Scala. Scala is also a programming language, and they have a limit of 20, a 22 tuple. They have the same problem. They use tuples in a very similar manner, and for a long time their limit was 22. And um, but there's a um, a database framework that you use to query your database and so on. It uses tuples, and when you have a database that has more than 22 fields, it doesn't work anymore. So Swift is not the only language that has run into this tuple issue. Um, for awful UI. I ran into a slightly different issue, and that is because I said everything extends to my own rendered UI protocol, right? That in order to, to uh, tell something to render into, UI, into a UI, a tuple cannot conform to a protocol. And so I couldn't actually use tuples. I used structs. So I defined new structs that have one item, two items, three items, four items. They conform to that protocol, and that's how I could solve that because with tuples, it was not possible. Again, if you use C++ in the background, like SwiftUI does, where you can inspect the type in a different manner, you can very well do this. I can't. So because it's Swift only, well, there's a binding to the Swift compiler for Swift that you could use to re-implement it more like SwiftUI from within Swift, but I'm not nuts. I was about to say, we can write C++. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I would also not do that. I'm not nuts. I think that's definitely fair not to, not yeah. to do that. Um, so when we, you were talking about an if-else, right? And mm. then immediately I think about a switch. Because sometimes that's also just a bit easier to read something. You mean the Is switch that, statement? Yes, yeah. right. Yeah, not the Nintendo Switch. Yes. <laughs> I'm just asking, what a switch control? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's another thing. But what about the switch statement? Is that something we can do as well? or No. Uh, so... <laughs> You can, That's a good answer. Next, <laughs> let's go to the next topic. So you can only you can only do what the function builders support, and they only support if and if else. What you can do is you can create a custom struct um, that has a one auto closure argument. So whatever expression you write in there is a closure, 
And then it has a couple more auto-closure arguments, um, which are used to evaluate the first argument. Um, so you can create some sort of Frankenstein struct that works fundamentally like a switch. It doesn't have all the, the properties that a switch has, um, but, but many of them. You can use fall-through, for example, pass-through and other things. But the, the basics would work, and you could implement that. And I, I, experienced, I played around with it, and it works. Um, but it's not like the switch in Swift, and it also looks different. And I'm not sure how much to gain from there. Really. Yeah, I feel that's tricky. It has me thinking back about Ruby, and it's like Frankenstein switch implementations that you can do. It's not ideal, I think. So I think yeah. that's something that we want to like keep away from unless it's really necessary, and then we should really consider how to do it. Yeah, you also can't, um, you couldn't do lab bindings in there. So, and then it, it, a switch becomes much less useful. Yeah, for yeah. sure. And I think it's hard to like battle with the Swift switch implementation because that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. Even going back to Objective-C and I cry every time. Yeah. There is, there's one interesting part about Swift UI that uh, was a bit tricky to, to implement. And that is also the one that, that where I think that it has a lot of some compiler support um, in the actual Swift UI implementation. And that, that is the any view. Um, the reason that's necessary is when you use a if-else. So let's say you use the if-else and you want to either return a in the two case a button, in the false case a um, text. These are two different types. We initially talked about the sum keyword, like right, where basically you say it returns whatever I have here returns some view, um, but it is always the same view. So when you return a normal protocol, when you say this is of type let's say your uh, my 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 custom view that's your your protocol type you can return whatever you want but with some view it always at compile time has to be all the the endpoints of your function have to return the same type it can't be a different type because you guarantee to the compiler this some view is always the same type now this doesn't work when you have an if else because with a text and a button because these are two different views and the compiler will complain and so the solution in swift ui is to wrap your view into the any view so basically, you 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 return something else called any view, that is um, the same type in the two cases because it's an any view and an any view. And the special thing is this is a type eraser. And the special thing thing in SwiftUI is that all the type erasers we've had so far in Swift, they still carry a protocol along. Um, but the, the any view in Swift, it doesn't do it. it it's not a any view of text or a, any view of um, of button. It's just an any view without any type, which is fascinating. Um, but that's then similar to just an any array that we talked about before, where that isn't like performant, right? So this is more of a solution to solve an issue there, which then still relies on dynamic dispatch to figure out what the type actually is. Or am I incorrect there? Um, it, it can't rely on a dynamic dispatch because we have a view with an associated type, which you can't query with dynamic dispatch. So I think it's doing something crazy with um, with the C++ implementation to figure out what kind of type it contains. But that's just a guess. And I, I didn't really look too much into that. I was too busy trying to find a solution that works with our constraints. It sounds, it sounds like that's something that we should try and ask somebody. Yeah, we could, we could do that and see how it works. And what about... So we talked about uh, sum. Why does this not work in iOS 12? That's, that's a fun thing. 
So I, I was very confused by that. Um, and that is that because it's a new Swift feature, right? It's Swift, the language, it's a new feature in Swift, the language. And we have ABI stability, so you would consider that this code you write in Swift.1 should also work fine on older versions of iOS that have the same ABI as the current version of Swift. But um, even though we have ABI stability, the sum keyword requires a change in the Swift runtime. So the, the ABI is stable and there's no change in the ABA, ABI, but the, the Swift runtime that does a lot of the dynamic stuff at runtime, um, that needed to be changed. And the old versions of iOS and macOS, they don't have this runtime. So they, they can't run this code. And now I thought that, you know, back in the days, what we did was we would tell Swift to contain the Swift libraries in the Swift runtime. And then basically your app would be a couple of megabytes bigger, but it would have all the Swift that it needed of the current version. I thought you could just do that, but that's not how it works. So apparently um, due to the ABI stability, um, this new keyword in the new version of Swift only works on new versions of iOS and macOS. And that's something that's tricky because I can see that happening more going into the future because we have ABI stability and because we still might see features that need runtime uh, improvements or changes. Yeah, uh, I, I also wonder how this will play out in the future. I'm also not sure if maybe in a future version of Swift or Xcode, this will be solved and there's just a, maybe a technical issue that makes it difficult to deploy uh, these new Swift libraries to older versions of iOS. Yeah, it's interesting because I think Apple has done a lot to, because ABI took a long time, yeah. like ABI stability took a long time. So I think they have thought about this a lot yeah. to make sure that this is not a problem, uh, for example, for uh, like async await, but maybe this was something that they didn't account for. Yeah, hopefully it's not a problem for async await or the other stuff that's coming up. Maybe something to end on is... What was the trickiest to implement about like this wrapper of SwiftUI? So there, there were actually two versions of that wrapper. The first versions had um, the same view with an associated type as um, Apple is using in SwiftUI. So everything was used more static dispatch. That was when I still thought that the sum keyword was available. Like I learned only that it, after I was done, I learned that it's not available in iOS 12. And for that, the um, any view was very tricky. I needed three, three um, runs to actually find a solution that works with my constraints. And that, it was a fairly easy solution afterwards, but um, it took me some time to find something that works with my constraints. Um, and the other thing that was a bit more difficult because it required a nice a nice abstraction in the background was the for each. Because what you do is you, um, let's say you have a list and then in this list you have a label and another label and then you have a for each and then you have another label and the, whatever happens in the for each is injected into the parent structure. So that, that needed some, some thinking to get this because the for each does not basically create another, let's imagine table view or another instance of something that, but it's injecting it into the variant. And, and that was a bit tricky, but again, um, it, it, just a good abstraction helped really a long way there. But I'm looking forward to like continuing to work on this. And I've played around with it after you build like an initial thing to get an understanding of, you know, what the hell you ever, what el whatever you did. Um, but I'm looking looking forward to to figuring out more and and seeing how that can be supported, also, or how we can build that in a way that it's really nice to use for for uh, our developers. And then, like we said as well, and which is one of the goals, is to mimic SwiftUI as much as possible, so we can 
uh, try and migrate some of it at some point. Because I think that's like we can already do that. We can conditionally compile a part in SwiftUI and like keep that as as a reference for ourselves to to make sure that we have a good overlap. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. All right, I okay. think that about wraps it up for this episode. So um, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening and um, hear you next time, hopefully. Yeah.